This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Luke. When the Son of Man comes, will he find the faith on the earth? The faith. And he's talking about the saving faith. Not just, you know, people mustering up a sense of belief, that kind of faith, but saving faith. Will he find saving faith on the earth when he comes? Will he still find people who are sold out for him, who are believers in Jesus Christ when he returns? It's a rhetorical question. He's like, I sure hope so. And now, of course, he knows that he will, but this is the challenge to his disciples. If Jesus were to return today, how much belief would he find in the world? Today, Pastor Gary will be challenging you to be a representative of deep faith in Christ right now, everywhere you go. Don't let the lies of the enemy or the unknown of the future dissuade you. Jesus is still who he said he was in the Bible. He's God's Son, the Savior of the world, and believing in him will set you free forever. Share that message with everyone you meet, and don't stop believing it for yourself. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Luke, chapter 18, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. Luke's Gospel, chapter 18, is where we are. What we see in chapter 17, what we saw in chapter 17, uh, repeated phrases. We saw the phrase, the day or the days of the Son of Man. We also saw in chapter 17 the phrase, when the Son of Man comes, uh, several times. Chapter 17, verse 22, verse 24, verse 26, verse 30, and also again here, we'll see in a moment, chapter 18, verse 8. And all of that that Jesus was saying when he used uh, those phrases was a reference to the second coming of Christ. He was talking about uh, beyond his own crucifixion on the cross that he's going to come again. And he talks about the days of the Son of Man, the coming of the Son of Man. What will be the condition, the climate, the circumstances in the world concerning just prior to his second coming. And what we also saw in chapter 17 was that The second coming of Christ will be two things, Jesus tells us here, visible and sudden. It'll be visible and it will be sudden. Uh, It will be visible in that every eye will see and everybody will know. There will not be any question mark about, is this really the return of Christ? He talks about like lightning coming from the sky. Will the Son of Man's return be? It will be very visible, but it will also be very sudden. It will come at a time when people least expect it. And the reason for that is because he says, that life on earth, this is all from chapter 17, life on earth will be both peaceful and prosperous. We will be living at a time where there will be general peace. Now, there's always been wars, you know, for every part of human history in some corner of the world. But he says, in general, people will feel like things are at peace and life is good and life is prosperous and, you know, the stock market will be doing well and, and life, you know, comparatively speaking, will, will be, will be good and prosperous. And that's going to be kind of the climate condition. And so he then goes on to say in chapter 17 that Christians on earth at the time of the second coming will be two things. He says they will be spared. Because he refers to the righteous as in the days of Noah and Lot. 
And, you know, you can say a lot of things about the days of Noah and a lot of things about the days of Lot from the book of Genesis. But one thing that they both shared in common was that just before God's judgment came upon the earth where they lived, uh, for Noah, of course, the judgment came in the form of a flood around the world. And for Lot, the judgment came in terms of fire and brimstone being poured out upon Sodom and Gomorrah. That just before God's judgment came, God rescued Noah and he rescued Lot. He spared them and their families. He rescued them. And Jesus draws that comparison there in Luke 17 where he says that when the Son of Man comes, the righteous will be spared like in the days of Noah, like in the days of Lot. And in particular, the righteous or the Christians on earth at the time of the second coming will be raptured. And we talked more about that. And I don't want to repeat what all the rapture is about. You can go back and listen on the teaching library to Luke 17, but but basically it's when Christians on the earth at the time of the second coming, when the trumpet sounds, will be taken physically from the earth, will be snatched and taken up to heaven, and that's why Jesus then uses the phrase there in Luke 17, 34 and 35, where he talks about one will be taken and the other left. There will be two men out in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Uh, two women who are uh, grinding wheat with, at the millstone, and one will be taken and one will be left. And so he, he draws that distinction that there's going to be the righteous to be taken, the unrighteous are left. And the book of Revelation talks about the time of the tribulation, the period that's coming upon the earth over seven years. It's God's final wake-up call to a lost and dying world to get their attention. And uh, people will still be able to get saved during that tribulation period, but it will be a very horrific time with natural disasters, natural catastrophes that God will pour out upon the earth to awaken a rebellious, uh, God-forsaking, Christ-rejecting world. So that's all that Jesus says there in chapter 17. Now, he's going to continue in this theme in chapter 18, because what we're going to see here is basically for you note takers, he's going to, he's going to basically say, since he's coming, uh, we need to be about a few things here. And he's going to teach two parables, the first two parables in chapter 18, as a lot of this section of Luke is, as I've mentioned before, are unique to the Gospel of Luke. The first parable that he shares here in chapter 18 from verse 1 down through verse 8 is unique just to the Gospel of Luke. And then the second parable he shares from verse 9 down through verse 14 is also unique, just found in the Gospel of Luke. So um, I'm going to read each of these parables separately, and then we'll talk about here's one of the things that he tells us we need to be doing uh, while we're anticipating a second coming. So here we go, verse 1 of chapter 18. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray. And here's the idea, circle the word there, that they should always pray and not give up. And he said, here's the parable, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. And the Lord said, I'm sure no one else has been ever in your life worn down by someone else... Anyway, I digress. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? 
I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, and here's that theme still about the second coming, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So one of the things that he's talking about here, obviously, is the subject of prayer. And uh, in combination of this parable and the next parable, what he's going to teach us is pray with persistence and humility. Now, the persistence part is this first parable. The humility part is the second parable. But I'm just going to give you the point right up front as we kind of unpack this a little bit. The first parable here, he talks about this widow. He talks about this judge who's an unjust judge. He doesn't fear God. He doesn't care about people. And this widow wants justice. So she consistently and persistently appeals to this judge to the point where it just wears him down. He just is weary. He's just like, you know, I don't want to see you again in my, in my courtroom. So, okay, listen, I'll just give you justice. I'll give you what you want. All right, just go away. Now, here's the danger in this parable. If you look at this parable, you can draw a wrong conclusion, and it's easy to do because it almost looks like that Jesus is comparing God to the unjust judge and to us like the woman and that we should just be persistent in prayer. And if we're persistent enough, we'll wear God down until he finally gives us what we're praying for. That's not what he's saying here. It's easy to look at it that way and to think, this is kind of bizarre. Why would Jesus make a comparison with this unjust, mean Judge Judy and compare her to God and to think that that's what God is? And Okay, look, this is not a comparison. It's a contrast. It's a contrast. And what Jesus is saying here is, if this widow, through her persistence, gets an unjust judge to do the right and merciful thing. In contrast, how much more will your heavenly father do for his chosen ones? That's what he's trying to say to us. That if we are persistent in prayer, can you imagine how much God wants to do for us if we would just simply align ourselves in prayer and approach the throne of grace in our time of need and to seek the face of God? So if an unjust judge will be so merciful who doesn't even have a regard for God and a regard for people, how much more will your Father in heaven be wonderfully merciful to answer your prayers because we as his chosen ones seek his face? That's what he's trying to communicate here. The persistence in prayer. And then he says there at the end of that parable, he says, I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And actually, in the original Greek language, there is the direct article, the, in front of the word faith, that your English Bibles don't express. So literally it reads, when the Son of Man comes, will he find the faith on the earth? The faith. And he's talking about the saving faith. Not just, you know, people mustering up a sense of belief, that kind of faith, but saving faith. Will he find saving faith on the earth when he comes? Will he still find people who are sold out for him, who are believers in Jesus Christ when he returns? It's a rhetorical question. He's like, I sure hope so. And now, of course, he knows that he will, but this is the challenge to his disciples. Will you still be strong in the faith? Will you believe? And will God find you strong in the faith when he returns? Well, he's going to continue with this theme of prayer now in the next parable. Keep reading with me. Verse 9, he says, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. 
two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. And I want you to notice as I continue reading here how many times the personal pronoun I is used here. So here comes this Pharisee and the other tax collector. And the Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. There's a lot of eyes in that prayer, right? It's all about himself. Jesus continues, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. There's the theme. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. So if the first parable was about persistence, be persistent in prayer. The second parable is about humility. Be persistent and humble in prayer before God. Don't approach the throne with the attitude of the Pharisee. Approach the throne with the attitude of the tax collector. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Don't make it all about what you think you're entitled to. Prayer, it is so easy for us to turn to God in prayer because of everything we want. I want this, I want that, I believe this about me, I believe that about me. Instead, the tax collector had this right perspective. God, I'm just a sinner, and just have mercy on me. And the Lord here says that everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. That's a constant theme throughout the Bible, that God humbles the proud, but he lifts up, he exalts those who are humble. Now, this whole subject of prayer is, has always been challenging to me personally, and perhaps to you as well. And I love the story of, uh, if you've studied anything about church history, a little bit about George Mueller who was such a man of prayer, such an example of a praying man. George Mueller lived um, 1805 to 1898. He um, died at the age of 93. He was a Christian evangelist and in England, and he also was the director of an orphanage called Ashley Down Orphanage, where he cared for, in the course of his lifetime, 10,024 orphans. 10,024 orphans. And he also established in the course of his lifetime 117 schools which offered Christian education to over 120,000 children throughout England, many of them being orphans. And there's a book that was written about his life called George Mueller, Delighted in God by Roger Steer. And in Steer's book, he tells this story about how George Mueller, George Mueller was known for his prayer life that he would pray a minimum of three hours every morning. He'd get up and pray before dawn. So he would usually get up at 3 a.m. and be done by 6 a.m. And in Steer's book, he talks about this one documented case that is pretty well known. Many of you are familiar, perhaps, with the story, where uh, during the 1800s, Mueller was running his orphanage, and he had no more food for the children. I mean, nothing. And so he, he brought all the kids down to the breakfast table, and like they were ready to eat, And he said, all right, kids, we're just going to fold our hands and we're just going to pray and we're going to ask God to bless the food. And he had no food. And he just prayed and got the kids to pray. We're just going to pray and ask the Lord to bless the food. And right about that time, there was a knock at the door of the orphanage. And the Lord had moved in the heart of the local baker to come and to deliver all this bread to the kids. 
And so in comes all this bread. And then the milk truck, which was pulled on a wagon, broke down, the wagon broke down in town, and all the milk was going to spoil. And so the guy who was driving the milk cart knocked on the orphanage and said, I got all this milk, my cart broke down, so can you use some milk? And that morning, all the kids uh, received bread and milk, and it was a miraculous provision from the Lord. But Mueller, in, in one of his um, writings, described his prayer life, and he said this. He said, prayer wasn't just quiet time with God in the morning. It was a way of life. He said, quote, I live in the spirit of prayer. I pray as I walk about, when I lie down, and when I rise up. And the answers are always coming. Thousands and tens of thousands of times have my prayers been answered. When once I am persuaded that a thing is right and for the glory of God, I go on praying for it until the answer comes. George Mueller never gives up, end quote. And I came across also some other quotes about prayer that are challenging from uh, some of the early uh, fathers of the faith. Uh, Martin Luther, he said, quote, if I fail to spend a few hours in prayer each morning, the devil gets the victory through the day. I have so much business that I cannot get on without spending three hours daily in prayer. John Wesley said, quote, prayer is where the action is, end quote. E.M. Bounds said, quote, talking to men for God is a great thing, but talking to God for men is greater still. J. Hudson Taylor said, the prayer power has never been tried to its full capacity. If we want to see mighty wonders of divine power and grace wrought in the place of weakness, failure, and disappointment, let us answer God's standing challenge. Call unto me, and I will answer thee, and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. And William Cowper said, quote, Satan trembles when he sees the weakest Christian on his knees. Good reminder for us. It's not that we need more information about how to pray. It's that we simply need to pray. And Jesus says here, listen, as you anticipate my second coming, be people of prayer. Be people who persistently pray. Be people who pray with humility. Approach the throne of grace and be praying people. And then in the next section here in Luke 18, from verse 15 to 17, just these couple of verses, it says that people were also bringing babies to Jesus to have him touch them. And when the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. They rebuked the parents. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Now, I typically will read this section actually from the Gospel of Mark. In Mark chapter 10, uh, Mark records a similar scene here. Uh, in fact, Mark gives us a couple of more little things about this occasion that Luke does not. Mark tells us in Mark 10, 24, that Jesus was indignant with his disciples when they rebuked the parents because the disciples thought that Jesus was you know, too busy to, to be bothered with children. And so when the disciples rebuked the parents, it says Jesus was indignant. He was mad at his disciples. And then the other part that Mark tells us is that Jesus took the children in his arms and he blessed them. He prayed over them. 
And so that's why we dedicate little ones around here. And, and we'll use this passage as an example of why we pray over little ones and just dedicate them to the Lord because the Lord loves children. And, and so we just pray and commit with parents, uh, their children, uh, here in our services from time to time. But what Jesus, I think, is saying in the continuous theme here is to believe with childlike faith. You say, okay, listen, the second coming is happening. It's going to happen. So pray with persistence and humility. And number two, believe with childlike faith. Because he says, I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Now, look, it's important that we exercise the brains that God has given us, okay? Faith is not to be dumb. Faith can be intelligent faith. But faith exclusively approached intellectually is not faith at all. There is a certain amount of trust that is involved in faith, or it's not really faith by definition. And so there comes a point where, uh, again, it should be an intelligent faith, where we exercise our, our minds and the brain that God has given us, but there comes a place where we approach God with a sense of trust like a little child. Every little child you know does not have everything figured out, right? And every little child is starts out very innocent, you know, very trusting, and then they grow up and get an attitude. It's called a teenager. And uh, and we've all done it. We've all been there, and we all think then we know it all, and so, you know, then we kind of, you know, get too full of ourselves. But in their innocent stage, in innocence in the sense of just they're trusting, they're, they're very, you know, they're very open to anything. Their world is just kind of, you know, they're wide-eyed about as children. So we should be with the Lord when it comes to faith. Again, it shouldn't be this dumb thing where we just, okay, you know, whatever. But, but it should be an intelligent exercise of faith where we reach a point where intellect can only take us so far. And then we have to just simply trust. Trust. You, you remember the first time that you swam in a swimming pool? And, you know, it's just kind of that moment where you're like on the edge of the pool and, you know, you're not quite sure. And, you know, dad or mom is there in the pool saying, you know, just jump, jump. You can jump. You can do this. And you got the water wings on and, you know, or you got the inner tube around your waist and you still are feeling like, I'm not really sure I can do this. But, you know, you can stand there at the edge of the pool all day long and figure it out and try to say to yourself, I wonder how cold the water is. I wonder how deep the water is. I wonder what it'll feel like if I jump in and never do anything. Or you can just at some point say, I'm just going to, with abandonment, just jump right in. And that's what faith is. At some point, you just can't intellectualize everything, or you will never make the plunge. And faith is that childlike trust, that childlike embrace of everything that God says that he is as he reveals himself in Scripture. And so pray with persistence and humility. Number two, believe with childlike faith. And then he has this encounter here with what my Bible is subtitled, the rich ruler. And it says this in verse 18, that a certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and mother. All these I've kept since I was a boy, he said. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Your 
The Gospel of Luke takes a unique look at the life of Christ, from His birth to His ministry, His death and resurrection. Luke described Jesus as the Son of Man, one of his favorite ways to refer to Himself. Jesus was God in human form, showing all of us what it means to live a completely sinless life. There was no fault to be found in Him, yet Jesus was still nailed to a cross. But His death had purpose too. He stood in for you, taking the punishment your sin deserves. And then he rose from the grave, conquering death and the evil one. What an amazing Savior this Son of Man truly is. Are you interested in knowing more about Jesus, or would you like someone to pray with you? If so, please email us at prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. That's prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. Do you live in or near Leesburg, Virginia? If so, we invite you to come join us this Sunday for a time of worship, Bible study, and fellowship at Cornerstone Chapel. Find out service times and more information when you visit our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. You'll also find previous messages from Pastor Gary and be able to download our mobile app. Again, that's cornerstoneconnection.cc. That's all for today. Thanks for tuning in to Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know